You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. That's 2 Kings, chapter 14. That's where we're studying this morning. You know what we like to do here at Whitefields? We like to go through books of the Bible. So currently we're in a series where we've been studying through the books of First and 2 Kings. Uh, we've taken a couple breaks along the way because it's been a long journey, but we are coming near the end of 2 Kings. And actually some really important stuff and interesting things here at the end of 2 Kings I'm excited to study with you this morning. All right, 2 Kings chapter 14. Let's pray as we open God's word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. You're a living God who has a living word for us today. Lord, we want to receive it. We want to not just hear it. Lord, we want to receive it into our minds and hearts and be transformed by it into the people you desire us to become as followers of Jesus. So Lord, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. And we ask that you do a transforming work in our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. What makes for a life that is truly worth living, a life that is really worth living. You know, as Christians, we believe in something called the sanctity of life, which means that we believe that every human life has innate and equal value before God because we're created by God and we're created in his image. But at the same time, as as we believe that, we also know that there are many people who, let's say during a time when they are struggling greatly or a time when they're feeling down, they might say in words, or maybe they just feel inside, they might say, I don't feel like my life is really worth living. Now, what are they saying there? And, And what does it mean then, in that case, to have a life that is worth living? What, what, what makes a life that is really worth living? Or you might put it this way, a life that is truly life. Is it, does it mean that you have enough money, for example, to have all of your needs met and have a comfortable life? I think that most of us would probably agree. It must be something more than that. Right? Is it perhaps the ability to have opportunities for adventure and, and excitement? Is it maybe relational? Is it connected, being connected with other people? Is that what makes life truly worth living? Or is it something else? What is it that makes for a life that is truly life? You know, it's really interesting because if you look at those three things I mentioned, right, having enough money, having opportunities, or having connectedness with other people, we live at a time in history right now and in a society here in the United States where we have all of those things to a degree that maybe nobody else in history has ever had to the same degree that we have them. And and so it's an interesting question, right? Because we live in what is really the richest society that has ever existed in the history of the world. And, And today we have more opportunities for education and experience and adventure than anyone else who has ever lived. And we're more connected relationally. I mean, even right now in the middle of this pandemic and everything like that, we still are extremely connected to people, not only locally, but worldwide. And so yet, despite all of these things, we're still asking this question. What is it that makes for a life that is really worth living? Well, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy in 
the book of the Bible called 1 Timothy in the, in the sixth chapter of that book. Here's what, here's what Paul wrote. He said, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And he goes on and says this, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And check out this phrase he says next. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Which is truly life. In our study today, we're going to be looking at a time in Israel's history when people became very wealthy. In fact, there are a lot of similarities between Israel at this time that we're going to read about and our society today. But here's what you're going to see. Even though they had full bank accounts, they had empty souls. The title of today's message is, That Which Is Truly Life. And here's what we're going to see in our, in our uh, study today. I, every week I give you a sentence. That sentence functions as our outline for how we break down the passage but it's also like a standalone statement that tells you, kind of summarizes what this message is about and what we want you to take away from it. So we encourage you, write this down, memorize it, whatever you got to do. But here's our sentence for today. It's a little bit longer than usual, but here's what it says. To people with full bank accounts and empty souls, God sent a prophetic witness to call them to discover true riches and to share his heart for the poor and the nations. So we'll keep that on the screen for just a minute, but let's go ahead and break down that sentence as we study our text. So to people with full bank accounts and empty souls. Let's talk about that part first. Second Kings begins with these words. In the second year of Joash, the son of Joaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, as you remember, here in First and Second Kings, Israel at this time was not a united nation. They were divided into two rival kingdoms. And the books of First and Second Kings bounce back and forth between talking about the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, here in chapter 14, as we begin, we're looking at one of the kings here in the, the beginning of the chapter of the southern kingdom of Judah. And his name was Amaziah. Amaziah became king when he was 25 years old, we read there. And in the first few verses of the chapter, chapter 14, we're told that overall Amaziah was a pretty good king. But what he lacked, it says there in the text, he did not have the same heart for God as David, his ancestor, you know, the one who came before him. Remember, all the kings of Judah were descended from David. All the kings of Judah were descended from King David. And King David in the Bible is known as the man after God's own heart. But here's the thing about Amaziah. Even though he had David's blood in his veins, he didn't have David's heart for the Lord. Amaziah's father, we read there in verse 5, Amaziah's father had been assassinated. We actually read about this in chapter 12 of 2 Kings. Amaziah's father had been assassinated. And so when Amaziah became king, one of the first things he did was he had the men who assassinated his father, he had them arrested and he had them executed for, for their crime. 
And yet here's the other thing we read about Amaziah there in, in verses 5 and 6, is that even though he had these men uh, judged for what they did to his father, he did not go after their children. He didn't kill their children. Now that might sound weird to you, but understand that was the custom in that day. If somebody hurt your family, you didn't only seek justice, you would seek revenge. And one of the ways that people sought revenge was not only executing the person who committed the crime, but also executing their children. Now that was forbidden, by the way, by the law of Moses, which we're told there in verse 6 of chapter 14, that Amaziah, by not seeking revenge and going after the children of the people who assassinated his father, he was keeping the law of Moses. And it quotes there, if you're curious, that quote comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 16. Deuteronomy 4, 16. Well, starting in verse 7, we read about a specific instance in uh, Amaziah's life. And here's what it says. It says that Amaziah struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm and called it Jokthiel, which is its name to this day. Now, historically, the land of Edom is in modern-day Jordan, which is to the east of Israel, right? It's on the other side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, just to the east of Israel. Now, the country of Edom, the territory of Edom, had historically belonged to, been under the sovereignty and the rule of the kingdom of Judah. But we read in chapter 8 of 2 Kings, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, we read about how Edom, at this time in their history, they had uh, revolted against Judah, and they had declared independence. And so what's happening here is that as Amaziah becomes king of Judah, he says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to take back that part of Edom that should belong to Judah that they took from us when they declared independence. Now, what's interesting about First and Second Kings is that the books of First and Second Chronicles tell us a lot of the same stories, but sometimes they give us a few extra details, which can be helpful as you read. So I encourage you, you know, be comparing First and Second Kings with First and Second Chronicles as we read along. This story is a good example of that. You can read the same story with, with a lot more detail in Second Chronicles chapter 25. It tells us some very important things, actually, but the one thing I want to focus on for right now is it tells us in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 5, that Amaziah put together this army to go attack Edom, and it was an army of 300,000 soldiers. Now understand, 300,000 soldiers, that is a massive army. Just to give you some context, the army of Canada is 42,000 soldiers, right? The 42,000 soldiers. Maybe you say, oh, that's just Canada. Well, listen, the army of Germany has 64,000 soldiers, right? So understand, an army of 300,000 soldiers is a huge army, especially in the ancient world. So Amaziah's got this massive army, and he goes down to Edom, and they just walk all over him. They just walk in, slaughter him, and they, they, they take back this city, Jokthiel, which just, if you're interested, this is interesting. A lot of people believe that this city, Jokthiel, is what is now known today as the rock city of Petra. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that is what many scholars believe. But listen, uh, you can imagine that Amaziah, he is just, you know, he's a new king. He, he's asserting himself. He's got this giant army. He just walked in and took back this city from Edom and made it part of Judah again. You can imagine he's feeling pretty confident. He's pretty pumped up. He's pretty excited. He's got this humongous army. And so look what he does now in verse 8. He's kind of getting a little bit full of himself, maybe even a little bit cocky. 
and he, here's what it says. It says, verse 8, Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And you might say, what a polite person, right? He wants to go and look him in the face, maybe have a coffee, get to know each other, maybe hug a little bit. That's not at all what's going on here. Some of your translations, if you're reading a different translation than mine, your translation of the Bible might say, he said that he wanted to go down there and he said, let us face one another in battle. That's actually the idea of this sentence. Let us see each other face to face. He's not inviting him to get to know one another at all. He's picking a fight. He's saying, hey, king of Israel, did you see what I did to Edom? Now I'm going to do the same thing to you. I'm going to come up there, and I'm going to take over you guys. And let's battle. Let's rumble. You see, understand, for the people of Judah, they viewed the northern kingdom of Israel as rebels who had broken away from their sovereignty and, and really needed to be brought back under the rule of Jerusalem. Because if you remember, when the northern kingdom split away, it was essentially a revolt against the leadership in Jerusalem. And so here's the king of, Is uh, king of Judah, Amaziah, and he's looking at Edom, right? That's a breakaway territory that they used to rule. Now he's looking for the big prize. You know, Edom, that's just a little thing. What am I doing messing around with Edom? I've got an army of 300,000 men. Rather than messing around with little old Edom, I should be going for the big prize, which is taking back the northern kingdom of Israel and bringing them back under the sovereignty of, of Jerusalem. So he sends this messenger to go and pick a fight with the king of Israel, essentially starting a civil war. But look at how the king of Israel responds. Verse 9, he says, A thistle on Lebanon said to a cedar of Lebanon, Give me your daughter, or give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? Okay, here's what the king of Israel is saying to him in, in kind of modern day terms. He's saying, attacking us would be a super bad idea. So just stay at home, you know, son. It's like patting him on the head. He's saying, you know, you're just a little thistle, a little prickly thistle, and you're picking a fight with a big cedar. You don't stand a chance. We will crush you. So listen, just enjoy the fact that you had a victory and stay home and chill out. But it says in verse 11, Amaziah would not listen. So verse 11b, or the second part of verse 11, it says this. The armies of Israel, they meet for battle, and they meet at this place called Beth Shemesh. Now, if you're curious where that is, it's actually south of Jerusalem. You would think that they'd meet on the border, but they didn't. They meet south of Jerusalem in the city called Beth Shemesh. And it says in verse 12 that Judah was defeated by Israel that day. And in verse 13, we're told that Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, and took him a captive. So understand this. Amaziah picked a fight with Israel Israel comes down, they fight. Not only does he lose the battle, but they take him captive. Now understand, what that means is that this was essentially a civil war. The, the guy from Judah, Amaziah, he was trying to take over the northern kingdom of Israel, but now he's lost the battle. They've taken him captive. If the people of Israel wanted to, they could easily 
maybe execute the king of Judah, and they could easily take over all of Judah and put that under their control. So he's essentially lost this entire civil war in one battle. But, but here's what's interesting. Rather than killing Amaziah, rather than taking over Judah, the people of Israel, they just kind of rough him up a little bit and then let him go. They say, okay, Amaziah, you're a young man. I hope you learned your lesson. You know, don't do that again in the future. And on their way back home, they kind of teach him a lesson by tearing down the fortifications around the city of Jerusalem, and they also go into the temple in Jerusalem, and they steal all the gold objects. Now, that wasn't a very nice thing to do, but understand they could have done much worse. Amaziah, this young king, he got a little bit too full of himself, and he led Judah into this foolish attack against Israel, which could have actually led to the downfall of Judah and a civil war, but the king of Israel decides instead to show him mercy. Well, in verses 15 through 22, it tells us that these two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Judah, they both, in due time, they both died and passed away, and their sons became kings in their places. Now, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, we're going to read about him in chapter 15. His name is Uzziah. He's, he's actually pretty important, and we're going to talk about him next week in chapter 15. But here at the end of chapter 14, this is where I want to camp out for the rest of our time together today, because at, at the end of chapter 14, we read about the next king of Israel, and he was a man named Jeroboam. Now, he, he's actually really important, and maybe that name Jeroboam sounds familiar to you, and it might because you might remember that the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel was also named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the name of the man who led the rebellion against Jerusalem and led uh, the, the breakaway of the northern tribes to form their own kingdom, which they called Israel. Now, this is a different Jeroboam, of course. That Jeroboam was found in 1 Kings, chapters 11 through 13. This Jeroboam is also called, sometimes, I bet in your headings of your Bible, if you take a look, he's listed as Jeroboam II, to differentiate him from Jeroboam I. Well, it tells us about Jeroboam II in verse 24. Here's what it says. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That was the first Jeroboam. So Jeroboam II, here's, the, here's what you need to know. He was a exceedingly wicked and evil king. He didn't love God. He didn't walk with God. He didn't pursue God. He, he didn't encourage the people to love God. And check out, though, that, that's interesting, right? He's an evil king, but check out what it says that happened during his reign. Look at verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath all the way down to the Sea of Arabah. Now look down at verse 28 and look at what else happened during his reign. It says that during Jeroboam II's reign, Israel took back the city of Damascus. That's the capital of Syria. Damascus had been part of Israel during the reign of King Solomon. When Israel was at the height of their power and glory, their, their kingdom had extended into all these areas, including Damascus. Well, you might remember that after the death of Solomon, Israel went into major decline financially and, and in, in world power and all of those things, and they lost a lot of territory. Well, now what we're seeing is that during the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel became strong again. They became a powerful nation. They became wealthy and influential. And you could say, seemingly, 
God blessed the reign of Jeroboam II, which is interesting, isn't it? Because he was a wicked and evil king. And yet, the reign of Jeroboam II was a time of economic, political, and military prosperity for Israel. Isn't that interesting? You know, this is something that's actually been um, confirmed by archaeology. You know, the country of Israel, if you ever go there, it's like one big archaeological dig, the whole place. And what they've found as they've done archaeology in Israel, what archaeologists have discovered is that prior to the time of Jeroboam II, basically all the cities of Israel, in the cities of Israel, all the houses were roughly the same size. They were small. They were one to two rooms. And they were all basically the same size. But there's a big change that takes place at this time when Jeroboam is king. And the change that takes place is that the houses in Israel, they begin to see these big, massive houses. So they unearth these cities. And rather than seeing a bunch of houses that are all pretty small, they start seeing these big mansions being built. And as they look at the items that they find in these houses as they unearth them, they're the signs of wealth and poverty, the marks of prosperity. But here's the other thing they find. Alongside these big mansions in these cities from the time of Jeroboam II, they also find entire neighborhoods with very small, crowded houses, which are even smaller than the houses which existed in the generations before Jeroboam II. So do you understand what that means? What it means is that while most of the people in Israel at this time became wealthy, the poor in Israel became even poorer than they had been before. But listen, even though most of the people in Israel at this time outwardly became wealthy and they had security, know this, that inwardly they were empty. They were empty. You could put it this way. They had full bank accounts, but they had empty souls. Full bank accounts, but empty souls. Do you know that it's possible to be blessed outwardly and yet inwardly be empty and poor? It's possible. Jesus told a parable about this once in a parable called the parable of the rich fool. It's found in Luke chapter 12. And I just want to read it to you real fast. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 15, it says this, and he, that's Jesus, said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll, big, I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus concludes by saying this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Well, listen, the man in this story that Jesus told, he was a genius when it came to business and money and finance. He was a genius when it came to farming, but he was a fool when it came to the things of God, God looked at him and said, this man's a fool. Why? He was rich materially, but he was poor towards God. He had full barns, but he had an empty soul. And notice what God says to this man. He says, this night your soul will be required of you. Friends, listen, for all of us, 
there will come a day when you will stand before God and you will have to give an account for your soul. That day is coming. And what Jesus is telling us is, since that day is coming, you would be a fool to not prepare for it. You would be a fool to not prepare for that day. Listen, everyone around this man would have looked at him and thought that he was a huge success. But God looked at him and said, he's a fool. He's a fool because he did not prepare for eternity. He gave no thought to eternity. He did not prepare for eternity. He didn't live his life in light of eternity, which he was racing towards. And Jesus says there in verse 21 of, of Luke 12, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Listen, this man's problem was not that he was rich. It was not that he was successful. His problem was that he was not rich towards God. You know, I think there's something that happens when we read these passages in the Bible which talk about rich people. And what I think happens, maybe at least it happens to me, it's really easy for us to dismiss these verses or to automatically in our minds go to thinking about somebody else, right? The, the person who lives in the neighborhood that's like one step up from the neighborhood you live in or, or maybe like the person at your company who makes more money than you, right? And your, autom your mind automatically goes to them and they say, oh, I really hope they read this Bible verse, right? Like maybe I'll text it to them. Maybe I'll send them a link to the sermon. I just really hope, you know, God directs some rich people to hear this message because they really need to hear it, you know, because we assume all of us, uh, that we're not the rich people, right? That we don't think of ourselves as rich people. Even people who I would look at and say, that's a rich person, probably they don't really consider themselves rich. Because I think we can all think of other people who have more money and things than we do. And we say, oh, those are the rich people, but not me. But please understand this. Historically, we are the richest people who have lived in the history of the world. The average citizen in our society lives on a level that was only known by kings and queens in past generations. And, and understand this, globally, we are the 1%. We, you and me, are the 1% of the richest people in the entire world. So know this, when the Bible speaks to rich people, it's not talking to other people. It's talking to us. It is talking to me, and it's talking to you. That is who we are. We are the rich. Our society, in this way, is actually surprisingly similar to the way that Israel was at the time of Jeroboam II. There are a lot of people in our society who have full bank accounts, but empty souls. Do you remember how in the time of Jeroboam II, the wealth of the people was reflected in the fact that they started building bigger and bigger houses? Well, you know that's true of us here in America as well. Just think about this. In the 1950s, the average home size in 1950 was 1,000 square feet in the United States. 1,000 square feet was the average home size. By 1970, the average home was 1,500, 1,500 square feet. By 2000, the average home size in the United States was 2,200 square feet. Now, in our time right now, the new builds, it is not at all uncommon for them, you know, many of the houses to be well over 3,000 square feet. And here's what's interesting. In the last 25 years, the average family size in the United States has decreased by 25%, and yet the average home size has increased by over 50%. 
So here we are with these giant houses that have less people in them. So what do we do? Of course, we fill our houses with stuff. And when you can't uh, fit your stuff in your house anymore, then you move it out to the garage, right? You start filling up the garage, then this other garage. And what do you do after that? Well, we've come up with a very American solution, which is the personal storage facility, right? So we get that. You know what a personal storage facility is? It's a barn to hold the stuff that you couldn't fit in your gigantic house that didn't have any people in it, right? And so here's some, some things about these personal storage facilities. You know that uh, if you think there are a lot of Starbucks in the United States, which, yeah, there are, right? Like I know this one place in downtown Denver where there are three Starbucks out of four corners, right? There's four corners at an intersection. Three of the corners have a Starbucks on them, okay? So there are a lot of Starbucks. But did you know that there are five times as many storage facilities as there are Starbucks in the United States. Not storage units, storage facilities, which are full of units. Now think about this. Um, these units, what are they made of? Well, they're made of like corrugated metal, and they're what, a couple hundred square feet. Well, do you realize that, that those are the materials, and that is the size of the homes that most people live in, in the developing world, in what we actually call the majority world, because the majority of people live in the developing world. You, you realize that the place that we put our extra stuff that we can't fit in our gigantic empty houses is the same place where other people in the world are putting their families. Now, I don't say that because uh, I want to, you know, be down on people who have stuff. I have stuff. I, my garage is full of stuff, too. I've had a personal storage uh, unit before myself. So I'm not here to tell you that it's bad. I'm here to tell you this. We just need to be clear on this fact that we are the people Jesus is talking to when he talks to the rich. We are the wealthy people who live in a wealthy society, which is very similar to Israel at the time of Jeroboam II, when people were building bigger and bigger houses. And therefore, when Jesus speaks to the rich, when the Bible speaks to the rich, we need to take heed. We need to listen. We need to listen to what Jesus is telling us and warning us not to be rich fools who have full barns but empty souls. Like Paul said to Timothy, we need to strive to take heed, right? To be rich towards God and to take hold of that which is truly life. And so the question for us is this. Will you take this one life you've been given and the resources that God has graced you with and will you use them for something that really matters both now and for eternity? Well, let's continue in this sentence, right? So to people with full bank accounts but empty souls, God sent a prophetic witness. A prophetic witness. Now, in the chapter right before this one, chapter 13, we read about how the prophet Elisha died. And we read about how when prophet Elisha died, people wept. They were beside themselves. They were upset. Why? Because they believed that with the death of Elisha, the prophetic witness of God in Israel had ended that there was no more prophetic witness in Israel because there wasn't a successor to Elisha. You remember when Elijah, who came before Elisha, died, it was clear that Elisha was his successor. But when Elisha died, there was nobody else. And so the fear was that the, the prophetic witness from Israel was gone. And what the prophetic witness represented was that God had not given up on Israel, that he still was speaking to them, that he was still working in Israel. And so when Elisha died, there was this sense of, Oh no, 
right? The prophetic witness is gone. It was as if God had left them as orphans. Without Elisha around, they wondered, who will fill that prophetic role? Who will speak God's word into our lives? Who will speak truth to power? Who will pastor our people? Maybe there's been someone in your life, and you can relate to that, right? A mentor or a pastor or maybe a, a friend or a family member who was kind of a guiding light for you in your faith or in your life. And when they died, they were taken away. You wonder, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this on my own? Well, understand, that's how the people of Israel felt at this time. But here's what I want you to see. When the prophet Elisha died, many people feared that the prophetic witness in Israel was gone. But in reality, God raised up several prophets. So God didn't just raise up one prophet to replace Elisha. God raised up several great prophets at this time. During the time of Jeroboam II, we know that at least God raised up these three great prophets, the prophets Hosea and Amos and Jonah. Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. So God didn't only raise up one prophet. He raised up at least these three great prophets whose books you can read in the Old Testament. They preached during this time of great wealth during the time of Jeroboam II. In fact, if you look at verse 25, just glance down at your Bibles, notice this. It mentions the prophet Jonah by name. It's pretty interesting. It says that uh, the border was restored according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. That's the same Jonah who, who you read about in the book of Jonah, who was called to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and preach there. But before God called him to go to Nineveh, we see that Jonah was already a prophet, and he was serving in the northern kingdom of Israel. So even though Elisha was gone, God had not left his people as orphans. And I think this is important for us in our day to remember as well. When great Christian leaders come and then pass it away, it's important for us to remember that God will not leave us as orphans. He's given us his spirit to lead us and guide us. And in every generation, God is raising up new leaders to shepherd his people and to speak with a prophetic voice. So what I want to do with the, with the remainder of our time is this. Briefly, we're going to look at each of those three prophets and what their messages were to Israel at that time. Because remember, Israel at this time was eerily similar to our society in our time. So maybe what God had to say to them at that time is important for us to hear in our time. So let's look at this. The prophetic witness. And what did it do? It called the people to discover true riches true riches. The prophet Hosea it spoke in Israel at this time. And that's, that was the ministry of prophet Hosea. He called the people to come back to the heart of God and discover true riches through relationship with God. At this time, the, the people of Israel, what Hosea spoke to them about is how they were looking to other things other than God to give them that which only God could actually give them. And we do this too in our day, don't we? We'll look to our careers. We'll look to relationships. We'll look to uh, other things to give us our sense of identity and well-being, our sense of, of security or our source of joy and purpose in life, when in fact, it is only God who can give us those things in the way that we, we really desire them and need them. So understand this. Whenever we look to something else other than God to give us that which only God can give us, the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. An idol, if we were going to define it, an idol is anything which takes God's place in your heart. Anything which takes God's place in your heart. And throughout the Bible, idolatry 
is compared to spiritual adultery. And the reason for that is because God describes his relationship with his people as being like a marriage. And so when we go off looking in other places for the things that only God can give us, it's like committing spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness, infidelity. And so in order to help these people understand and see what they were doing, in order to call these people back into relationship with him, God called Hosea to do something radical, not just to preach a message, but to live out a message. And it was a pretty serious message. Here's what it was. God called Hosea to marry a woman who we might call today a serial adulterer, a serial adulterer. Her name was Gomer, and Hosea marries her, and from the moment he marries her, she is running off with other people and committing adultery. In fact, she has more than one child through these adulterous relationships who then Hosea brings into his home and has to raise in his own home, in his family. And yet, despite her infidelities, Hosea remains faithful to her. And at one point, it gets so bad that Hosea, we read that he goes out one night into the streets looking for her. We read this in Hosea chapter 3. He goes out in the middle of the night searching for his wife, knocking on doors in the city, and he finds her at another person's house. And, and, and she's not even able to come with him because she's become a slave. She's sold herself into slavery for some reason. And he has to purchase his own wife back and it says that he spent 30 shekels of silver, which is the price that you would pay for a slave. Her adulterous actions had led to her becoming a slave. And so Hosea pays the price to redeem her out of slavery. He brings her home, and he cares for her, and he loves her. And Hosea's actions were meant to be a vivid picture of how God loves us and redeems us, even when we are unfaithful to him. So through the prophet Hosea, God was inviting people to return to relationship with him, to stop looking elsewhere for the things which only he could give, and to discover true riches through relationship with him. Because the Lord, your Redeemer, loves you. He is faithful to you. And in him are all the riches that your soul desires, both now and for eternity. That brings us to the next part of this prophetic witness. It wasn't only to call them to discover true riches in relationship with God, but also to share his heart for the poor. This brings us to the prophet Amos. Amos prophesied in Israel at this time as well. And God's message through Amos was something which was exceedingly practical. And here's God's message through Amos. You can read about it in the book of Amos. His message was this, that the people of Israel, in all of their wealth and all of their comfort, they had neglected to care for the poor. In fact, in some cases, they had actually abused and taken advantage of the poor. Do you remember how archaeologists, alongside these mansions that they dig up, they also find these neighborhoods of, of small, crowded houses, ghettos, if you will? That's because the poor in Israel, while most people became rich, the poor became even poorer. And in Amos chapter 4, God literally calls the people fat cows. He says, you fat cows, the only thing you care about is make, taking care of yourselves, making yourselves fatter, while other people are suffering who live in the same city as you. Why don't you have concern for other people? And in Amos chapter 5, God tells them, your worship, he says, when you come and make sacrifices, when you sing songs, it is despicable to me that you come into the sanctuary and then you leave and you treat other people the way that you treat them. God says, you need to repent of this. You need to share my heart for other people in your community. 
Listen, it, this is what we learn from this. What is a life that's truly worth living? Well, it begins with finding riches through relationship with God, but it also includes having a life that isn't just about serving yourself and fattening yourself up like a cow, like we read there in Amos chapter 4. It includes sharing God's heart for other people and actively seeking out ways to be God's hands and feet in the world and in our communities. You know, I was reading a book this week, and it was said something interesting. Here's what it said, that psychologists have identified that one of the root causes of anxiety and depression is something they call obsessive self-rumination. Obsessive self-rumination is one of the leading causes of anxiety and depression. Now, what does that mean? Well, to be obsessively self-ruminating, it just literally means that you are consumed with thoughts about yourself. You are obsessed with your own needs and wants and desires. When you're thinking, it's about you, in other words. And what these, these secular scientists are saying is that they, they're saying something that the Bible has known all along and been telling us all along, is that if you really want to have true joy, you need to get your eyes off of yourself. And rather than obsessive self-rumination, God calls us to join him on his mission in the world, to care about and to serve others who can give us nothing in return. You see, this is how we store up treasures in heaven. This is one of the ways in which we shine God's light in the world, and it's an integral part of living a life that's truly worth living. Well, the last part of that prophetic witness is not only discovering true riches through relationship with God, not only sharing his heart for the poor and those in our community, but also sharing his heart for the nations. The prophet Jonah was called at this time to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And God's message for those people was that if they would repent of their evil ways, God would show them mercy. But you might remember that Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because Jonah hated the Assyrians. And Jonah was pretty surprised to discover that God didn't hate them too because Jonah thought that God should hate them. I mean, after all, didn't God see their despicable practices? Didn't God see how terrible they were? The people of Nineveh, in Jonah's mind, they didn't deserve mercy. What they deserved was judgment. So by calling God to Nineveh, God was sending an important message, not only to Nineveh, but to the people of Israel. And that message was this, that God did indeed love them, but he didn't love only them. There were other people out there that God also loved and wanted to bring into his family. And, and yes, God had chosen them, but he hadn't just chosen them so they could be proud of themselves for being chosen. No, he had chosen them to be not only his own, but to be part of his work in the world of taking his love and the message of his mercy and grace to the nations so that those people could know him as well. And guys, this is true for us as well. Friends, don't you know, I want you to know this. God loves you, but he doesn't love only you. There are other people out there that he wants to reach so they can know his love and his grace. And guess what? He wants to use you to reach those people. There are people all over the world, and there are people on your street and in your cul-de-sac and in your apartment building whom God wants to reach, and you are the one that he wants to reach them through. So to take hold of the life that is truly life, 
the life that is really worth living. It involves finding true riches through relationship with God, and it involves joining God on his mission of taking the gospel into the world, the good news of Jesus into the world, to the ends of the earth, starting in your own backyard. Jesus used this phrase, to be rich towards God. What does that mean? Well, look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The message of the gospel is that God gave up what he had. He gave up the glories and the comforts of heaven in order to become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he paid our debt, the debt that you had accumulated before God by your sins, by your shortcomings, by your mistakes. That debt was so great that you could never, ever be, be able to pay it on your own. And yet he came to us. And on the cross, he paid that debt to set us free. He took the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve, so that our debt before God could be forgiven and wiped away. But that's not all that he did. Not only did Jesus pay your debt, but he also accounted his righteousness to you. Understand what that means, accounting his righteousness. It would be like if the richest person in the world transferred all of the funds from their bank account into your bank account. In an instant, not only would you have the capital to pay off all of your debts, but you would have inexhaustible riches. That is what is offered to you in Christ Jesus. And the way to be rich towards God is to receive this gift of his grace by faith, by trusting in and clinging to and relying on Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. The way to take hold of the life that is truly life begins with finding those true riches in him, but also involves sharing God's heart for others and actively engaging in his mission in the world to bring love and truth to those right here in our community and to the ends of the earth. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.